Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's one minute past nine. You are tuned to 102.7, 3 Triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty, all of them. My name's Dr. I'm not Dr. Beach. I'm Bron Burton. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well, Dr. Burton. <coughs> you should rejoice in that PhD that you got. Like, well, that was just a few years ago. Yeah, five or so. Yeah, no, I'm Dr. And Beach this. and you're Dr. Burton. You're, you're Bron Burton. I am. Lovely to see your cheery face yeah, this morning, Bron. Likewise. And Kent over there behind the Perspex screens. <laughs> for your safety. For, for, our safety, for, our safety. For, our, for our safety. And uh, wonderful Tim Thorpe, who's through, I think, four panes of glass in another uh, studio. Thank yeah. you, Tim. He's waving. He's doing semaphore. <laughs> it's, so I think he is. Thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. As ever, what a wonderful Vital Bits. I enjoyed a bit of beer ah. as I was coming up here this morning. I must have been Thanks getting my Tim. coffee at that time. I think you probably But wanted. I listened yeah. to a lot of it and it was a magnificent Vital Bits. Thank you very much, Andrew, for Sulphur Bits. You can catch Andrew next Sunday and you can catch Tim next Saturday at 6am. Indeed. We have a massive show, Dr Beach. You've we have a huge you've done, show. You've done all the heavy lifting with organising this week's show. Oh, yeah, I've been in the gym. <laughs> um, yeah, pint of science, pint of science. Um, a couple of years ago, we might have been off to some pub venues to hear some scientists talk enthusiastically about their stuff over a lager or two. Uh, last year, of course, COVID put a halt to that. Mm. Um, Pint of Science is still going this year, back in force, but not so much in the pubs. They, online was pretty successful, so we're keeping it there, keeping it a bit like that um, for the moment. So we're talking to a gang of people from Pint of Science. We have Chanel Egan coming on uh, to go through what, what Pint of Science is about and how it looks this year. And then we're going to follow that up um, probably at around 20 past nine. We're going to have a couple of Pint of Science presenters. I've, I've called them stars in the social media comms for this week. Oh, have you? I said they're the stars of Pine of Science. The stars of Pine of Science, yeah. So who have we got? We got, we've got Indrani from the University of Tasmania and she's going to be getting into a subject which is close to my heart and it's the evolution of complex cells. So I'm sure it's close to your heart as well, Bron. Um, something which happened around a billion years ago, she's going to talk about ocean chemistry sediments and that, how that has informed what we know about yeah, moving from bacteria to big cells like ours, you carry it's all good fun. And then we have Amy McIntosh who's coming on to talk to something, talk to us about something I've, I've never even considered that when you, you know, when you dig stuff out of the ground and oil rigs and all of that, you're also dragging up a little bit of radioactive waste. What do you do with it? Where does it go? No concept of that. Amy's going to talk us through that very fascinating topic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that'll be around nine thirty. Well, a bit, yeah, a bit after nine thirty. We'll be a bit organic with our timing today, I think, Doctor. Yeah, Beach. yeah, yeah, a bit organic. We're all on Skype. They're all waiting there um, <laughs> tentatively at the moment. We're all hoping it works. We're pretty sure it will. If we have, if it doesn't, we've got you know backup Zoom, backup phone numbers, backup semaphore. Yep, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. We will. And Jeff. Is going to close the show. What a contrast from Pint of Science to uh, Soundwave sequels. And the only clue I have this week, apart from the titles of the, the grabs that he sent through, but I'm not going to give that away. He just said, yes, the bad stuff just won't go away. Oh, my God. I'm scared already. 
<laughs> what a fun show. What an eclectic show. Yeah, what an eclectic show. I'm going to do the weather. But before I do that, I'd like to have a big shout out to all those people who are walking around the tan right now for the Mother's Day Classic, raising money for breast cancer research. So for those of you who are, um, well, yeah, I think anyone's interested in that. Lots of people are chucked in money. Lots of people are walking into a good thing. And happy Mother's Day to all those mothers out there. Indeed. Uh, weather. I said there's some weather after that, didn't I? So I'd better keep my promises. It's going to be 20 degrees today, Bron. Um, and what are they saying? Partly cloudy. Areas of morning fog, morning chance, medium chance of showers in the east, slight chance elsewhere, most likely in the morning and early afternoon. That is of showers. Uh, light winds becoming northwest 15 to 20 kilometres per hour, becoming light in the late afternoon. Uh, tomorrow we're looking at 16 degrees, showers developing. Oh, we could get 8 millimetres tomorrow. That sounds like fun. Um, and, oh, no, that was Tuesday. I always read this wrongly. I always go to the day after. I don't know what it is about the age. I should complain to them. Uh, 16 <laughs> degrees tomorrow, um, showers developing again. And let's go from tomorrow straight across to Wednesday because I talked about Tuesday before. So Wednesday, if you're not confused already, is going to be 18 degrees, mostly sunny. And looking like that for the rest of the week. If you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides. So at Point Lonsdale, which of course represents the heads of our fair Port Phillip, it was a low tide at, well, 3.30 this morning. You don't care about that. But it's going to be a high tide at around 10.22 a.m. this morning of 1.33 metres. Surf, I've got no idea what's happening there. I spoke to Dr. Surf during the week as well. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. You can go to Swellnet and get the latest. Yeah, yeah go to Swellnet. Do you want to, um, if we rang him, he'd just be telling everybody, no, surf the West Coast, don't do the Mornington Peninsula. He just so wants to keep it for himself. He just keeps it to himself. <laughs> Patently obvious every time we get a surf report from surf. It's like, no, not, 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 not where I am. Surf's no good. It's crap today. Go to the You're other so side. so transparent, Dr. Surf. He's going to ring in a minute. I can feel it. Yeah, feel in my right. waters. I know, yeah. His blood pressure's going up right now. <laughs> Do you want a weather report from Antarctica? Oh, yeah. Cliff Davis, Triple R's most remote subscriber, says air temperature minus 17.7, wind chill factor tw- minus 26.1, humidity 68%. That's a bit drier than it was last week. And, uh, yeah, interesting-looking aurora forecast. That beautiful green ring off the west coast of Antarctica. We'll post that on our Facebook page. And um, Cliff has also sent some beautiful sunrise photos, which I'll also post on our Facebook page. Absolutely stunning sunrise in Antarctica. And he has a shout-out for us. So we're sending this from you to your mum, Sarah Cliff. Um, and he says the days are getting shorter. Please give a shout-out to Sarah, my mum. Hope the dolphins come and play for you today. They live on Edith Vale Beach. I don't know whether that's his mum or the dolphins. I think probably both of them. Could be both. Mm. Yeah. The Edith Vale dolphins. Happy Mother's Day, Sarah, mum of Cliff. Yeah. <laughs> Your son is doing amazing stuff. It was so much fun talking to Cliff. We're going to do it again. Are we? Yep. That's exciting. Haven't lined it up yet, but we will. A couple of quick shout-outs and then we're going to play some music. Um, this is uh, from some some of our listeners have sent some messages in. One came from last week's program, actually, Ant and Yvette, who were listening to uh, the program that Ant and Fum did last week, talking specifically about ocean acidification and forwarded us, we'll put this on our Facebook page too, article from ABC Radio National Science Show providing one possible solution to acidification and carbon pollution at the same time. I think we might have talked a bit about this before, Dr Beach. Uh, Tim Flannery, seaweeds? 
new approach buries carbon dioxide safely in seawater. Oh. I, yeah, don't think this is sequestration. That's more underground, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we'll take a look at that. An en- oh, it could be seaweed. An enzyme speeds up a reaction process, allowing carbon dioxide to combine with calcium, producing calcium bicarbonate. Cool. I'm going to flick that one to you, Dr. Beach, in your expertise. Yeah, chuck, it in, my, chuck it in my folder. Far more knowledgeable about such matters than me. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> you can bring this one back to us in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. I feel like I've just event. been given an assignment. You have. <laughs> nervous already. I'll put it into my calendar. Don't forget your due dates. <laughs> and a message from Annie. This relates to the proposal um, to do some fairly substantial works at Flinders Pier. And uh, she just sent us a message. I think this might have been last week saying Parks Vic have earmarked 143 piers and jetties. Oh, 143 piers and jetties for demolition, including North Jetty and End of South Jetty at Warneet. Wow, so it's not just Flinders. There's a bundle of them. We'll better follow that one up as well. Yeah. The show about all things wet and salty. This morning we're very pleased to have, well, not in the studio, but we've got them all joining by Skype, um, the crew from Pint of Science. First of all, we've got Chanel Egan, who is one of the people who is deeply involved in organising Pine of Science. So, Chanel, how are you going? Good morning. Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to see you and nice to um, and nice to hear you. Um, so, Pine of Science, I was just telling the listeners earlier on that um, Pine of Science, what, you know, as the name suggests, a couple of years ago, up until 2019, was deeply in pubs, uh, people drinking pints of beer, whatever they want, perhaps having a wee dram of whiskey and having enthusiastic scientists talking to them about their stuff. I wonder if you could just take us through, like, you know, how Pine of Science evolved and where it is now, what it looks like. So Pine of Science originally started in 2013 in the UK um, by two scientists there who wanted to communicate what they're doing to everybody. Um, from there, it came to Sydney in 2014 and then it spread um, across Australia since then. So in 2019, um, we were in 19 cities across Australia. And then 2020, we were meant to be in around 25 cities across Australia. And then three weeks out from the festival, we did a huge pivot um, to cancel everything and run an online festival. How did that so, go last year? Really well. Um, it was totally new to us. We've, you know, had many years' experience of just being pub live events throughout the country. Um, but we had three weeks. We had about 15 amazing volunteers um, that pulled together some online events across social media and then also some trivia and live panel events. I guess like everybody had to, to yeah, pivot's, pivot's a great word. It's perhaps overused, but I think it does express what happened to a lot of us in March last year any kind of educational institution, university, schools, and all sorts of people, everybody in the workplace had to jump around and you know, get themselves reorganised. But it sounds like you've done it really, really successfully. It's, it's, it's big congratulations to that whole team at Pint of Science. And, of course, well, we here at Radio Mara love science communication. We think it's a very important thing, and it's great that you've had people out in the pubs and you also have people doing this online. So this year, so Chanel, you're, you're speaking to us from New South Wales, Newcastle, I believe. Um, we've got Pine of Science everywhere via the web, so we're not in pubs this year, and we're going to be talking to um, Indrani soon, who's from Tasmania, and also Amy, who is from New South Wales as well, ANSTO, the Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation there in Sydney at Lucas Heights. But um, can you just 
Yeah, we, I've already sort of preambled a couple of marine talks, but what else have you got going for Pint of Science this year? How, how many speakers, how many different well, virtual venues, if you like? So we have eight online activities this year. So we start, um, our, our most popular one is trivia. Um, so the team has battled it out over science knowledge. Um, this event is online on Wednesday, the 19th of May. Um, and that will cover all six of our Pint of Science themes. So all of our um, content is grouped into six groups of atoms to galaxies, planet Earth, our body, beautiful mind, tech me out and our society. Chanel, so we do have – oh, sorry. Oh, it's Bron here, Chanel. I was just wondering about trivia. It's it's an interesting one. I've hosted a couple of trivia nights and they can get pretty feisty, especially if, you know, if you've got people sitting at home maybe actually having their pint while they're, uh, they're you know, getting involved in their trivia. How are you going to go about resolving disputes? You've got such a, a wide and diverse range of subjects and I think you'll get a few – I'm anticipating you'll get a few uh, people participating who consider themselves experts in their fields. Yeah, so um, we did trivia last year and thankfully no disputes. <laughs> um, but we had some, you know, hilarious punny team names. So I'm looking forward to that again. Um, all of our questions are fact-checked. We have an amazing group of um, volunteers with a lot of science knowledge. So hopefully uh, we're not doing anything incorrect. But definitely reach out if there's anything dodgy but um lots and lots of hours of volunteers have gone into that don't worry i don't, I don't think it's going to be us that's going to be although well, I, I, I intend to do this it sounds fun i love a trivia favorite saturday morning is sitting up in bed with a coffee doing the quiz nice. <laughs> so trivia but again when's that on chanel wednesday the 19th at seven o'clock okay and and the other events the other pint of science performances if you like will be live i'd imagine so we have um, Pint Panels, which is a live um, panel. So we have six different panels ready to go. So we have What Makes Science Science and Can We Cure Cancer on Thursday the 20th of May, 2021 A Space Odyssey and Thoughts for Food on Monday the 24th of May, and Fight for Planet A and Ethical Considerations in the Digital Era on Thursday the 27th. So it does. It doesn't actually kick off for a, a few days yet, does it? That, that all the events, and we, I guess, we're very lucky here this Sunday morning at Triple R to have um, a bit of a preview from Amy and Indrani coming up. So that, that, that that's pretty exciting for us. Um, so it's all live events. People log on. They can um, easily find the info if they just punch "pint of science" into their favourite search engine. I imagine. Yes, you can Google us, um, but for a full listing of all the events that we have, it's pineofscience.com.au forward slash festival forward slash 2021. Fantastic. Um, and you're kind of hoping that next year you might get back into the pub or this has been such a successful way of rolling out Pine of Science that you're inclined to stick with it? We're very excited to get back into real-life venues and events. But I think uh, one thing that we've learned from last year and this year being online is that there's a lot more um, like social media engagement that we could be doing. So um, we have some other events which are this is my science and this is my field, which is just online looking at, um, you know, giving scientists the opportunity to walk you through their workplaces and show you how they do their, their work and what they do. So I think things like that will be great to continue even when we are back in 
Fantastic. Thank you very much, Chanel. Chanel, we're going to go for a bit of a break now, and then we're going to come back and we're going to have Indrani Mukherjee is going to be talking to us about deep ocean chemistry and the evolution of complex cells. And then we're going to follow that up um, with Amy McIntosh telling us about what she knows about radioactive waste in drills. So thanks again, Chanel. Um, stay on the Skype thing. You jump in later, chuck in some questions. And yeah, we're really looking forward to this, um, this group chat with them. Um, with Pint of Science just after this track. You're on 3RRR. The show is Radio Marinara. 923, you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR where we are indulging in pints of science today, Dr Beach. Yeah, I've got a nice um, kind of English bitter here, a pint of English bitter, enjoying that. No, no I haven't. Um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> had too many of those last night watching the Melbourne Football Club go to eight straight victories. Sorry, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just let that go. Oh, you gotta, you got to enjoy the wins, Dr oh, Beach. Yeah. I like the oh. quote from Nathan Buckley on the back of the, uh, the age today. Which was? Um, something like winning is better. Winning is better. Good on your bucks. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't hide my excitement. And, and you know, I, I'm not just coming out of the closet now. Yeah, I've been barracking since oh, we... Oh, you've I, been a long I, I was at our last premiership. <laughs> just about. <laughs> Did they invent electricity then? Oh, shut up. <laughs> Uh, indeed, as, Pron, as Bron said, we're, um, we're having our own little pint of science festival here. We're very lucky at Radio Marinara to have a bit of a preview. Uh, we've just been talking to Chanel Egan, who is one of the people running Pint of Science. Now we're very excited to talk to a couple of presenters, and we're going to kick off with um, with Dr Indrani Mukherjee. Um, Indrani, you are at the University of Tasmania, and I'm hoping you're still there on Skype and you're seeing us and listening to yep. us. Or, you are fantastic. How are you going down there? Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Hobart, and it's a it's a complete luxury if, if you're in Tasmania ever. The weather can get really funny, but I'm pleased to inform you that it's absolutely beautiful outside right now. Fantastic! I was in Tasmania a couple of years ago, and it was the coldest winter day they'd ever had. I happened to pick <laughs> that day. We were going to do the nude swim, but pulled out for reasons obvious. <laughs> Um, so Indrani, um, University of Tasmania postdoc, Pine of Science, you're very much interested in deep, open chem- uh, deep, deep ocean chemistry, ancient ocean chemistry, um, something which yeah, I find pretty fascinating as well, and how it is linked to the evolution of complex cells. Can you run us yeah. through that? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty um, – I'm still high on my PhD topic, if I can say that. I really <laughs> did enjoy – um, doing my PhD did get stressful at times, but because the topic is so fascinating that you can um, go back in time, and when I say time, it's millions of millions of years. Um, yeah, it's a pretty um, interesting and groundbreaking technique that we're using. So we basically look at the chemistry of pyrite, which is one of the very common iron sulfides present on the Earth's surface, but we look at the the mineral in marine rocks so the pyrite that's forming in the oceans and you've got rocks that are billions and billions of years old so you look at the chemistry of pyrite which is forming in the water column in the oceans and it basically tracks what the chemistry of the ocean is because it's an excellent absorber of a lot of the bioessential trace elements that we have in the oceans today and they were there in the past Sorry, Indrani, just to jump in, and sorry, it's Bron. Just so um, listeners can be aware of this, that pyrite is something that they've probably seen at some point in their lives. It's also known as Absolutely. fool's gold. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, 
I think it's pretty uh, cool. It's probably more cool than gold, but I'm sure a lot of other <laughs> Indians would completely disagree with me being the largest consumer of gold in the world. Um, yeah, so it's the, the chemistry of pyrite that gives you this critical information on how the nutrients in our oceans have changed through time and how that may have had a critical impact on evolution of early life. So we know how the first complex cell, 34 million of which you and I are made up of as well, a trillion, I should say. Um, but the cell first, the complex cell first formed um, during the time period in Earth's history called the Boring Billion, um, which is, you know, such a bad name for such an interesting time span. But that was my job, uh, in my PhD. You can imagine what it was like. Here you are. Here's your topic. It's got the word boring in it. Good nice. luck. You got, you got, you got ripped <laughs> off in tiny. Can I just stop you there for a moment? So you're talking about the first complex cell. So... And we are made up of complex cells, but they are in contrast to contrast to cells which we call bacteria, prokaryotes. Is this what you mean? So that transition from a cell which doesn't have a membrane around its nucleus to something which has all sorts of little packets in it, which does all jobs of work. So going from prokaryotes to eukaryotes. Yeah. So that's the that's probably the most important transition um, and most critical transition if you look at it in terms of. Um, a milestone in biological evolution, that transition from a very simple cell to a very complex one. Because without that, there would be no macroscopic life and nothing that we see on Earth today in terms of complex life, including including us. So Yeah, no plants, the, no animals, the, no fungi, none of that. No, no, none at all. So, so this the, is kind of part and parcel with the acquisition of a mitochondrion. So many people, I think, will understand that we've got mitochondria, these little energy powerhouses and all our cells that... Um, yeah. enable us to, to do respiration essentially and give us energy out of that. So this is all part of getting mitochondria through that event which happened, we believe, well, in my understanding, yeah, like just, a couple of billion years sure. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, th this process is not a one-off thing that happens in a few uh, span of few seconds. These things take time and any evolutionary event in our Earth's history today, it really takes time and we're talking millions millions and millions of years so there'd be a lot of trial and error and then something takes off and that's really essentially what we were trying to propose in uh, in one of my one of my papers is that the reason why you'd form this is the most plausible explanation we came up with is that because mitochondria and other cell components that we currently have in a eukaryotic cell are derived or their their genetics are linked with prokaryotes so it could be archaea or it could be bacteria. Yeah, so let's so, just stop it there. So in prokaryotes, you've got two groups. You've got sort of things we might call extremophiles that live in like sort of high-pressure zones, you know, almost yeah. boiling temperatures of water, and they're the archaea and the bacteria are the things that inhabit yeah. our bodies that we're familiar with in the soil and all those things like E. coli. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so essentially these a complex cell derived its cell components from other other different domains of life, which are archaea and bacteria at different points in Earth's history. The reason why uh, one cell is being engulfed into the other and not digested, but ingested. So when something is being engulfed into another cell, it's not being consumed. It's been, it's like a symbiotic relationship. And yeah, that's- It's a happy relationship where you, where you don't eat your partner. Yeah, exactly. So you and I benefit from each other rather than killing each other off. But it's why would something 
coming to a symbiotic relationship, not until there's a there's a pressure, environmental pressure, some form of stress, and that would encourage or promote or trigger whatever word you might want to use for one cell to come up with this thing of well, resources are scarce. We've got to come up with an alternative mechanism. Um, let's be mates. So, so, so how, does Iron what how, how does Iron Pyrite come into this? So Iron Pyrite comes into this because, as I said, and as I think Ron mentioned as well, it's it's quite a common um, mineral, iron sulfide. Iron sulfide actually absorbs a lot of the trace elements or bioessential or essential nutrients that we have in the oceans. And they have, so when you look at the chemistry of pyrite through time, so you've got chemistry of pyrite on, on x-axis and then you've got on, on your y different elements. So when you look at it through time, you get a pretty good idea about how your nutrients fluctuated um, through time, essentially. So we've got data, tens and thousands of pyrite analysis that are 3.5 billion years old, right up until modern day. So we've analyzed a whole lot cool. and we're continuing to analyze more. So that can give you a pretty good idea about how the nutrients have fluctuated through time. Now, I'm only focusing as a geochemist on what the nutrient concentrations, how that impacted evolution of life. So scarcity of nutrients or abundance of nutrients. But there are other factors that will have influenced life as well. So pyrite is giving me the information on how nutrients fluctuated through time and how that information is then helping me resolve, well, if nutrients were low, what impact did it have on early life? If nutrients were high, what impact did that have on early life as well? Fantastic. And, and, and so the resolution you've been able to get from these analyses of pyrite has got you to, has, has closed the window down for, for when this event may have happened? Yeah, well, um, I think it's it's in, like I said, it's it's a very very first order um, trend that we have through time. However, in a particular geological location, you can nail it down to to millions of years, and that's not a big big scale for us, by the way. Plus minus three or four million years is very common for geologists. Yeah. We don't think uh, Earth, Earth has been here for four and a half billion years or something. Yeah. <laughs> Indrani, that's fascinating. That's that's really cool. And you're continuing this with this work in your postdoc at, at UTAS. Yeah, um, I just would like to point out that uh, yes, I am able to continue. Guess why? Because the chemistry of pyrite is also used for other applications, like finding uh, zinc deposits in Australia. So that's why industry loves me as well. So that keeps my postdoc uh, running because uh, not a lot of, if you know, the Australian Research Council grants are very, very hard to get. Yeah, but indeed. industry money keeps me going, and that's because it's a it's a crazy mineral. No wonder I love it more than and gold it gives you so valuable information because it helps you to vector you can analyze pyrite from a mineral deposit you can analyze pyrite away from a mineral deposit that helps you with vectoring and thanks god for that uh keeps me in a job yeah indrani i have so many questions for you and we have to move on i'm going to line up another time i want to explore the concept of the boring billion because that's just blown my I, mind i would love to talk to you about that yeah. like i said still have on my phd yeah and also the um just that concept of what you were just talking about with um with pyrite being because we talk a lot about bio indicators biological indicators this sounds like a geo indicator and yeah 
Yeah. So let's park that. Oh, I hate that expression. <laughs> you got me going with the whole pivot thing. Let's let's leave this one here because and and we'll talk offline and, and organize another time for you to be on because there's so many questions I have for you. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, talking to Chanel Egan, um, and then we just had Indrani McIntosh from the University of Tasmania taking us through. Well, yeah, telling us fascinating things about iron pyrite and what you can learn about that, about the evolution of cells. And now we have Amy McIntosh, who's a, a PhD candidate at ANSTO, which is the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, at Lucas Heights in Sydney. Amy, how are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, we're all well down here in Melbourne. How's things in Sydney? Not too bad, okay. Not too bad. Very cloudy and miserable today, as usual. <laughs> cloudy, yeah, yeah. Melbourne's beautiful. Sydney's always like that. Oh, yes. <laughs> You have, a, you have a really amazing topic for your PhD, something that I, I, I had no concept that it was even an issue, and this is radioactive waste in offshore infrastructure. So is that, from my humble understanding of it, it, this is about when we dig stuff out of the ground, when we're looking for exploring for, you know, say off the northwest of Western Australia, we might be looking for oil and gas deposits. You've got to pull a certain amount of stuff out of the ground and what's left over might have some radioactive contaminants in it, naturally occurring ones. Is this, this is, have I got that right? Absolutely, yes. Um, so I just want to set the scene. I mean, because the topic is pretty heavy for a Sunday morning, especially on Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to let everyone get in the mood. Um, so you, let's say you're in Western Australia and you see a beautiful, why well, not beautiful, oil rig off the coast. And then you're just flying over the oil rig and then you go down the pipes. This is actually bringing up the, the oil and gas. And you keep going down until you hit the deep sea where it's dark and murky. And you see a few turtles maybe, some fish, um, and then you've got some prawns here and there. And within these pipes is the process, the extraction of the oil and gas. But over time, as that's coming up the pipe, it's building up this kind of crystalline scale um, that is really pretty, um, but it's radioactive. Because in the ice crust, um, you've got uranium, and this is all naturally occurring. Um, it's unlike what you find in incidences like Chernobyl um, or the power plants in Japan, where it's very much um, human kind of induced or human caused. Yeah, yeah, so, that, that, so those ones, that, so that's radioactive, like special radioactive isotopes that you can only make in a nuclear power station. Whereas there is, as you said, of course, we get all of our radioactive material from somewhere, and that's the earth, like uranium and all of those things. But that comes up. So, yeah, just amazing. And, and so your PhD is looking at what, it, how much of that is there, how we deal with it, or. Pretty much, like, is trying to solve, like, what the problem is and what the problem is is basically you have this kind of radioactive material in the pipes and industry um, have to decide whether they want to leave these pipes in the ocean or if they have to remove them uh, based on a whole assessment so they have to look at if it's costly um, if it's going to cause um, some effect to the workers that have to bring up um, because you they'll get dosed and a lot of people are uneducated or they just don't know that the stuff they're bringing up could potentially cause them some health effects. And my side is looking at the environment. And so I'm looking at if the scale uh, can cause any effects um, to surrounding marine life, um, either in different scenarios, 
and also looking at the environment and the ecosystem as a whole. And because you've got multiple stresses happening, you've got this radioactive scale that also contains toxic metals, so like arsenic and lead, lovely mercury. And then you've also got um, potential residues that are left from the hydrocarbons. So that's left from the oil. What, what kind got, of volumes are we talking about? Is it like huge amounts that are there and they just don't know what to do with it? Pretty much. Um, there's tonnage uh, that just they clean the pipes and um, so they take like this pig um i'm not sure if people have seen the incredibles um the underminer has that big kind of mine machine that goes under the city <laughs> it's kind of like that but it goes through the pipes and it cleans as much as it can and it gets a big deposit and they put it in a barrel and they put it wherever they think is appropriate to keep it safe in the meantime um, but the problem is there's just so many pipelines um, across Australia. I think there's over around 50,000 kilometres worth of pipe. And each of these different kind of pipes um, would have maybe different types of the scale, uh, maybe low concentrations, high concentrations. And people can't go down there like scuba dive, open up a pipe and say, oh, we've got this much. It all happens at the end. when So when the pipe ends its life, they have to basically do this whole assessment of where is the scale, what do we know, what don't we know. And so it's my job as a PhD student is to be able to take some of that scale, being able to identify what's in it. Is it going to cause some effect? And then I do the step-by-step process of feeding it to marine animals in the lab, seeing if they have any effects or maybe none in the long term. And then project that back and tell industry like, hey, your scale is safe um, or it's not potentially toxic. We can recommend you do these further steps um, or it's toxic and we need to run a few more tests and we'll get back to you on what the best decision is. That's that's just fascinating. It's just opened up a whole concept, an area that I had no idea about. Are you seeing any effects on the organisms that you're testing so far? I, I imagine it is early days. Oh, it's very early days. I started in January. Um, so I got some little baby tiger prawns, so the ones that you see in the seafood market, uh, and I put them in the lab. And over a month, I fed them different concentrations of the scale mixed in with just normal fish feed. And I had a look and see what amount of scale in the food would cause sublethal effects. So that's the point where they die. And over that week, um, I found that the majority of them actually survived based on the concentrations that I used. So I'm like, okay, this is not too bad. It's not what I expected. Uh, but looking at some of the results already from the radionuclides, so the radioactive side, is that they did take up some, like polonium-210, um, lead-210, so that's an unstable lead. And then radium-226 was just undetected. And I think it's important to realize that radionuclides have a decay. So they slowly decay over time. And so what I find in, let's say, an individual prawn and the results, it will differ if a prawn was tested a month later with the same stuff. It's just this temporal and long-term kind of story that you have to keep going. You have to keep pushing out results, being like, this is what's going to happen in five years, 10 years and 50 years. 
happened. And it's the the hmm. flow on effects from that as well. Sorry, Amy, it's Bron. The flow on effects of that as that animal. I mean, you're just really looking at one particular species of prawn. The the flow on effects is that. Uh, flows through the food chain. So you have a prawn that um, takes on these chemicals that then is consumed by, for example, a fish, which might be consumed by a larger fish. And uh, presumably those materials then continue to travel through the food chain. But the implications of this stuff could potentially be enormous for industry and, and fisheries too, obviously. Yeah, that, and that's one of the key aspects of my study is looking at that whole big ecosystem picture that accounts for the human population as well and so later on down the line eventually um, i'm gonna use a prawn and then somehow dose it and then i'll get some fish in the lab and i will look at that transfer and then i could possibly make some hypotheses and, and inferences that i can say there's no risk to humans um, or there is but there's an issue with potentially the communities around oil rigs or even pipelines that are unaware of what they're taking from fish, especially like commercial fisheries are, are massive off the coast of Western Australia. You've got swordfish, barramundi, snapper, and these get shipped across all of Australia. And so you're looking at not only a small scale picture, but you're looking at it on a whole continental kind of level as well that, that, that the so. implications of this are, are kind of mind-boggling the more you think about it and the way you have to test and what, what, what oh, yeah amy i would love to talk about this more but of course we have to move on we have jeff coming into the studio um it's it, i know we say this a lot but we deeply like we, we really would like to get you back on the program um <laughs> particularly yeah it'd be really great so I'd, I'd like to thank the whole pinder science crew for joining us this morning on marinara we've had um, we've had chanel egan and we've had indrani makaji and we've just had amy mcintosh um thanks guys that was really fascinating listening for us this morning and um again if anybody's interested in listening to more pint of science they have lots of live things including quizzes go to paint go to pint of science um, on your favourite website, this is um, Radio Marinara on Three Triple R. And just before we move on, sorry, I just wanted to be before we move off from this, a big shout out to uh, Elodie Campress for helping us set all of this up too, Dr. Beach. Yeah, thanks, Elodie. That's been fantastic. Triple R is where you are, where the time is ten minutes to ten, and we are very, very excited and happy. Whoa, bit of background noise, Dr. Beach. <laughs> Making a big re-entry back into studio too. Good morning, Jeff Maynard. Good morning, Burton. Morning, Beach. Um, let's not dilly-dally. Let's get on with it. Uh, 2021 is like a bad sequel for 2020. It just keeps... It's, COVID just won't go away and it keeps coming back in kind of weird ways. Um, so we're doing sequels, S-E-A, however you spell it, um, sequels, <laughs> uh, this year on Soundwaves. And I'm here today with a bad sequel. Um, Are there any good ones? Very rarely. Yeah. I, I, actually, a few people have sort of done the thing of, you know, the, the, the sequel to the big movies and they said, oh, I don't know, Godfather 2. Godfather yeah. yeah. Thank, thank Classic. you, Dr. Yeah. Beach. Uh, you know, things like that are, are better. But it's usually – and Toy Story. I think Toy Story 2 or 3 was better than 1. Oh, I can't I reckon remember. Terminator 2 is better than Terminator 1. Let's That's not digress. Let's okay. not digress. Anyway, we're, we're I've got sequels. bad sequels. S-E-A-Q-U-E-L. This is a disaster movie with sharks, uh, probably the most famous one. But by the time we keep bringing the shark back, so how do we keep coming back with uh, worse sharks? Um, so what we're going to do is set up a sort of marine 
by a, a marine park, a family-themed marine park, and uh, have a disaster there. So the first thing we have to do with any marine park is what you need is a lot of cheap, um, underpaid workers with little shorts on and false smiles walking around. So let's have a listen to our, our getting ready. We enforce our dress code here, so keep your hair and nails trimmed. And please, don't alter your costumes. Once you've been fitted with your SeaWorld Guide apparel, the shorts are short enough. <laughs> Show any cheek and you'll be back shoveling french fries. <laughs> now, let's continue with our welcome speech again. All together now. Welcome to SeaWorld, the, the world's, world's largest marine life park. <laughs> So we've got our world's largest marine life park and it's, it's kind of got to be the, for a good disaster, um, it's got to be kind of the Titanic of parks. You know, we've got to have all this stuff underwater and whenever you, you send the general public underwater, you have to have a lot of above water cliches like, you know, pirate world and all this sort of stuff. So uh, let's have a little description of the um, Titanic of, of marine parks. This is the Undersea Kingdom, four years under construction at a cost of more than $34 million. Four pressurized viewing tunnels radiate out into the lagoon. There's the sunken Spanish galleon, Jonah's marine funhouse, the deep water coral forest, all connected to the hub, central control, and a deluxe restaurant and cocktail lounge, all 40 feet below the surface. The whole complex is built in our man-made lagoon, which is connected to the open ocean by a deep water channel. Are they so, possessed? Huh? It sounds like they're possessed in the background. Well, they sort of are. They, they're, yeah. they're all trained. As, oh, the people in the background. Yeah. That, that's, that's the girls in the little shorts still practising their, oh, um, uh, <laughs> their, their mantras, you know, welcome to SeaWorld, you know, where the whole world comes to you and all that sort of stuff. Right, you right. Know? Yeah, you know, they're, they're in the background sort of practising okay. their little speeches. Um, the other thing we need with a good sort of follow-up disaster is – when the original comes out, there's a lot of interesting characters. But when you do a sequel, you really you you got to resort to cliches. So we've got in this one, we've got a series of cliches we're about to hear now. Uh, one is a stuffy British documentary maker adventurer, you know, Lord So and So, who's there to to film sharks, and he's got an Aussie uh, shark expert sidekick who's got a thick Australian accent, which didn't really sound, and, and he calls everyone governor. Um, you've got the, uh, the 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 voice of reason, which is the attractive thirty-year-old female marine biologist, um, and you've sort of got the voice of warning. And in this case, it's the son of Sheriff Brody from the original Jaws, and he's saying, you know, my dad knew sharks, and, and let's be careful with them. Uh, so you put all these people together, and and I should say the only way you tell the um, uh, the the stuffy British um, uh, documentary maker. If if you ever want to become a stuffy British documentary maker or his Aussie sidekick, all you need is those. You know those photographers' vests, those vests with all the big pockets. Oh, yeah. Those sort of, yeah, yeah, a couple of those, and you walk into any marine world. Just they'll say, "Come on in. You're obviously a documentary maker." Anyway, let's have a listen to all our <laughs> cliches, figuring out what to do because they've spotted a, a massive shark somewhere and they want to try and figure out what to do. If we kill this beastie on camera, I can guarantee you media coverage. That's how we're on our bread. <laughs> no. Well, I don't know if it's occurred to any of you all, but there isn't a great white alive in captivity anywhere. If, if we could, could dart him, tranquilize him, we, we could get him in a holding tank. Oh, now hold it, hold it, now hold it. No, this is crazy. This is nuts. 
The white sharks are killers. I know them, for God's sakes. My father, my brother, myself. They're murderers. Calvin, they die magnificently. <laughs> murderers. Um, so anyway, we've got a massive, massive shark on our hands. And of course, just in case you don't realise, we have to get the big shark into this underwater marine park. And um, it's a little subtle. Uh, but it swims, the massive shark swims through, or the massive shark and its baby swims through the something or other tunnel or something where all the people are. And uh, in its next scene, they're trying to figure out where it is. And it's a little bit subtle, but you're trying to let the audience know that the big sharks got inside the marine park. Was it the shark? It was a shark with a bite radius about a yard across. Silly. Indicator. A shark of some 35 feet in length. Our shark couldn't have killed Overman. Its mother did. Damn shark's mother? Calvin, don't you hear what she's saying here? Now, if there is such an animal, she gave birth way out to sea and the baby swam through the sea gate that you left open, Brody. No. Overman was killed inside the park. The baby was caught inside the park. Its mother is inside the park. So this is a Mother's Day edition, Jeff. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't think of that. That's perfect. The big, the big Mother's Day shark. I thought this was all planned. No. Just say it is. It, it's, yeah, it was planned, yes. No, I, actually, I, I, spent, I spent days trying to find the right sort of little sound grabs to tie in with Mother's Day. There you go. And now we've got sort of Mother of Jaws or Jaws Mother something or other. Yeah, there we go. It's a bit like anyway. when a stranger calls, isn't it? The calls coming from inside the house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so the shark's inside the park. And it just, it, it's Jaws 3D. And that's the other way you know when a sequel's really getting bad, when they do a 3D version and people sitting in the theatre have to put on their little funny glasses and... And music tells them when to put their glasses on and the, the, the spear gun comes right at them or something. It's just dreadful. Jaws 3D. Um, Jaws was great. Jaws 2, okay. And, of course, it was down there from there. So that's it. That's our sequel for, for this one. How many Jaws movies have they made? I think they made a four. Okay. They, they, but they called it Jaws the Revenge and Michael Caine got a gig in it and they brought back Lorraine Bailey. And, um, Lorraine Bailey? Yeah. From yeah. the Sullivans. From the Sullivans. Oh well, one of the right. What's who's the wife from Sheriff Brody, Mrs. Brody? Who's her? Lorraine Gary. Lorraine Bailey and Michael Caine. I don't actually watch that. Oh, it's, it, they're all food, you know. Peach <laughs> Lorraine. <laughs> it's, um, it's, and, it, and it was a Mother's Day classic. And it was a mother. Yeah, well, it was a mother's. Yeah, well, the Sullivans. I mean, what's more Mother's Day than the That's Sullivans? Right, yeah. yeah, they filmed Jaws Four down at the Retreat Hotel. Remember? <laughs> now Jaws Four the Shark chases them around America or somewhere. It just, it just goes. It's if, Jaws Four was bad. Is Chevy chasing Ma- that Michael one? Michael Caine have said I never even watched it. <laughs> I think it's all getting a bit silly. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. My work here is done. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Any clues for next time? None. Excellent. Absolutely none. My wife fix what ain't Another broken. Another sequel. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Doctor Beach. That's been a complete pleasure. And thank you, Kent, very much. And uh, thanks to all our guests today: Chanel Egan, Indrani Mukherjee, and Amy McIntosh, part of Science. On next week's program, Kate is going to be in with a special guest talking about social structures in stingray populations. Uh, author of a new paper, Rex Hunter will be in. Plus, we'll have uh, Doctor David Hocking from Monash University talking about the evolution of swimming in seals. So, already a wonderful program lined up for you. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Uh, Dr. Mal, I believe. 
Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.